following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. All right, let's uh, let's open our Bibles. We're going to go to Psalm chapter 3 this morning. We are going to start a series that we call Summer Psalms. And what we like to do in this series is just take a little bit of a refreshing break out of uh, what we've been digging into, which is Genesis, and just take a look at some some favorite psalms that different folks have. Uh, it was supposed to begin last week, uh, but uh, when Dave Quilla came back from a trip that he was on, it was very obvious that uh, what Dave and Pam had going on in their home and Dave getting ready to help to Jordan that we needed to get um, have somebody else sub in. And Stan did a fantastic job last week uh, on Matthew 6. So instead of doing a psalm, he did Matthew 6, and I don't think any of us were disappointed by that. Um, so it was really good. Also, I want you to be aware of something that as we're mobile more than we've ever been, you're going to pick up on a lot of different technical challenges we're having. Uh, I just want to th- say thank you ahead of time for your patience. There may be moments when it's going to feel like we're just singing an acoustic set. And that's okay. And there's going to be moments when it may be that my mic kicks in and out, and that's all right. Right? Uh, because the biggest thing is we, we want to be people that just simply, faithfully, in simplicity, maintain a heartfelt devotion to our Savior Jesus. And technology wasn't around 1,500 years ago, and they still advanced the gospel. So we're going to be faithful to do that as well. Right? So thanks for being with us and being, being uh, patient with us. Um, since May 23rd, here are here's just a sampling of what has happened in the life of members of this church. One of our church members was in the hospital with gallstones and had to wait for the stones to pass and their pancreas to finally stop swelling and finally, after several days, had their gallbladder removed. One had a tumor the size of a football removed along with their kidney, which was found to be benign. By the grace of God. One was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Another member's mom passed away suddenly. One of our little girls broke her collarbone while swinging in a hammock. One of our members had a tractor accident and was badly bruised, but thank God was not broken. One of our pregnant mamas had a baby who was transverse and was faced with possible induction until the baby finally got in the right location and turned the right direction. One of our members fell on a pitchfork and had to be taken to the ER to have it removed. And just a few days later, after that, one of our members had a piece of steel from a trailer get stuck in his leg, was life-flighted to Eugene, where they took great care of him and sent him home. Sewed him up, sent him home. All of that... Since May 23rd. Now you can do the math. Not very long ago. And those are just the things that I know. I'm sure there's more. And during hardships like many of you have faced, and like some of the ones I just talked to you about, it's super easy to get discouraged and disillusioned. I think that's the beauty of faith. It's in these moments that that challenge our faith and it challenges our trust in the Lord. Because these moments, these hardships, they're real. They're real. And they're hard. The questions of why, the questions of this isn't what I planned for, God. What are you doing? Those things come up often. So how do we how do we fight for faith in hard times? How does God's work in us and for us get us through tough times? In some Christian circles, here's what some people are being taught. If you just simply manifest or speak certain things into existence, they will happen. So you get a sickness and you just basically say, this is not going to happen. It's not real. And you, and that's going to manifest something. Call out health. Speak wealth into your life. Demand blessing. But here's a question for that. What happens when you call for health and you're still getting wheeled in for surgery? 
Some in the Christian world would tell us that earthly hardships, they're not the reality of what you're really facing. What's really going on is something else behind the scenes, and Christians should just simply act as if this is just merely a mirage and not real, and we should act as if these things aren't real. But I don't know about you. Um, I read through my text messages over the last several months of things I sent out for prayer requests to our leaders, and I can tell you that there's a lot of real hardship. And it sure feels real, doesn't it? Don't tell any of us who are losing a parent that it's not real. Don't tell the guy who was going in for kidney surgery, being told that he had kidney cancer, that that's not real. But Christian friend, here's what I want you to see today. And this is one of the many wonders of God's word. One of the many things about how God's word is so helpful. God's word shows us that hard things happen to us on earth. And it deals with them as if they are real and as if they are hard. See, that's one of the things about us living in this Christian world that we think of is that we just kind of act like things aren't really real and hard, yet they are. The Bible does not ignore the pain of life. It just doesn't. And while at the same time, God's word then gives us heavenly realities of what's real in heaven to help us deal with the real hardships that are about living on earth. And that's what we're going to see this morning in Psalm chapter 3. Now, here's the big idea for the day. Life is filled with adversity and adversaries. But God is for us. Remembering his work for us will help us have peace in a world of trouble. We'll say it again. Life is filled with adversity and adversaries. But God is for us. Remembering his work for us will help us have peace in a world of trouble. So stand with me. We're going to read Psalm 3 and then we're going to pray. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. Selah. But you, oh, Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Father, would you pull back the veil of heaven this morning and let us see the realities of heaven. And may they comfort your people in the realities of what they live in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Look at the story behind this psalm, which is the first point in your outline. And if you came here today, you should have got an outline. And that'll kind of lead you on this journey with us. When we think of painful things in this world, some of what I mentioned earlier come to mind. I mean, right? I mean, a pitchfork seems painful, right? Seems awful. But betrayal, unfaithfulness, and being stabbed in the back by friends or family members would be at the top of the list, wouldn't it? And if you've had that happen, you know exactly what it's like. Some of you have experienced this. Well, that's the story behind Psalm 3. King David is the most famous and successful king in Israel's history. David had a son whose name was Absalom. 
Absalom was head and shoulders of everybody else. He was a very, very handsome man. If he walked in the room today, many of us would swoon over him. Many men would say, ooh, I'd like to look like that dude. The gals would wonder what his social media feeds are. In Absalom's young adult life, he murdered one of his brothers because that brother had raped his sister, and Absalom was angry that David did not execute justice on his brother. The murder led Absalom to being exiled from Israel for several years until eventually David showed him mercy and finally restored restored him to Jerusalem. When Absalom returned, his selfish ambition and his lust for power did not stop. Literally, he would stand at the gate of Jerusalem, like Israel's Washington, D.C., and he would talk to people as they were heading for an appointment with King David and just begin to tell them the wisdom that Absalom would give them in comparison to what David would give them or what David did give them when they left the throne room. And over time, as we're told in 2 Samuel chapter 15, Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. The coup was on, and the die was cast for Absalom to make a run at David's throne. And that's precisely what happened. After four years of stealing the hearts of the people, Absalom finally had enough followers to declare himself king without the approval of his dad or without the knowledge of his dad. When King David heard the news that Absalom had declared himself king and had enough followers to destroy the people in Jerusalem, David warned his followers that they needed to get out of Jerusalem fast because Absalom was coming on the way to kill them. And David, along with those followers, left the capital city. Now, just process this for a moment. It's the capital city that David had built. It's a city of peace where David had warred to get peace into this city. David's heart was crushed as he left Jerusalem knowing what he was leaving behind. Yet you're going to notice something interesting about David. Even though he was crushed, he still trusted that God was at work. Here's one example of that. When the priest prepped the most sacred religious artifact of the city, the Ark of the Covenant, to take it out of the city with David, listen to what David said. Carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, the Lord will bring me back. And let me see both it and its dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let the Lord do to me what seems good to him. See, Absalom wanted to rule his own kingdom with a closed fist, without his dad's influence or blessing, and certainly without God's. But David saw himself as the servant of God's kingdom. And since he was God's kingdom, God would determine who's going to lead that kingdom. So David heads out into the wilderness to hide and be safe from Absalom. Now, if you know the story, you're also going to know that there's moments along this journey that people are cursing David as he goes. And David's mighty men, um, men like some of you in this in this church, would say things like, David, give us one shot to kill those guys because we don't need another shot. Not like at first those guys would shoot, and like a second that they would defend David. Like a thirdly, they're so tough they don't need another shot. And David every time says, maybe the curse is from the Lord. David heads out to the wilderness fortress, and over time as he's there, he gets wind of an attack from Absalom and his followers. And David is warned by one of his advisors who happens to be on the inner circle of Absalom to basically say, listen, you need to get to a safe spot because Absalom is coming in the next day. So David leaves his fortress, goes across a creek in a particular area, And at that spot, on the morning of Absalom's coming invasion, David, according to history, wrote Psalm 3. So think about this moment. Your very own son. (laughs) I cannot even imagine. Has betrayed you in unimaginable ways. And he's now your sworn enemy. He's coming with rage and jealousy to eradicate you from the face of the earth. He's 
strong and your men are outnumbered and you're exhausted. He's young. You're not. He's full of of vinegar. You're full of anxiety. And you fall asleep not knowing if you're going to awake in the morning. And when you do wake up, what's your first thought? Well, David's first thought was, I'm going to write a psalm. That's the story behind this psalm. Can you imagine the disillusionment? Can you imagine David remembering and recalling the promises of God that he would forever have a son on the throne of Israel? You think he bargained for this one, that the son would be one who betrayed his own name? When verses 1 and 2... David shows us earthly realities, adversity, and adversaries. Notice what he wrote. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. If you're David, wouldn't it be easy to feel this way? The whole world is coming against you. How many are my foes? How many are rising against me? At this moment of David's history, some of his most trusted advisors have switched sides. They've gone to Absalom's side. Some friends have crossed over to enemy lines. It would feel like the whole world had betrayed you and was against you. Let me ask you this. It feels that way a lot sometimes, doesn't it? You get a bad health diagnosis, and it feels like suddenly the entire world is crashing in because all you can see is what the doctor has told you. You have a friend stab you in the back, and it feels like everyone around you is talking about you and on their side. You lose your job, and it suddenly feels like every bill has become due on the same day. How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Isn't it easy to feel this way? And look at the accusation of these adversaries. There is no salvation for him in God. David, I can almost imagine him writing this, just hearing the declarations coming from the throne room, now being ruled by a rebellious son. He can almost hear it in the wilderness. There is no way God can save this old man. His days are over. God won't save the king. There's a new king in town, and David is done. These enemies weren't just attacking David's life. They were attacking David's faith. And doesn't it feel this way? Every adversity, every adversary seems to challenge our faith in one way or another. Will God save? Will God help? Will God provide? Will God heal? Will God be faithful to his promises? Will God get me through to the end? Will God watch over my kids? A friend of mine is currently on a hiking trip with his son across Spain on the Camino de Santiago. And they came across this sign on at the Castillo y Leon. I want you to notice this. It's a little blurry, but I'm going to read you the line that's handwritten. The original line that's handwritten says this. Be thankful for all God gave you. Everything is a gift. And it's crossed out by this statement. Be thankful for all you have done for yourself. Do you see, do you see the challenge to your faith? Do you hear, there is no salvation in God? And we see this everywhere in our culture and our world. Folks, if you're paying attention, you would know that the Christian church has had several bad things happen to her in the last 20 years. And some have been exposed that happened even further than that. Sexual abuse cover-ups. Divorce on demand. Young adults leaving the faith. Bad leadership, and now what's called the exvangelical movement, leading the charge, declaring there is no salvation in God. 
The sexually crazed world tells us God only wants you in bondage because there is no salvation in God. The rich and the powerful tell us God can't save you, but money and power will because there is no salvation in God. All around us, our adversities and our adversaries are declaring to us there is no salvation in God. They're challenging our faith. And you've got to ask the question, where does this stuff come from? Where does it come from? See, what are the, what are the adversaries that attack our lives and our faith? We may not all have individual Absaloms. I can tell you I have, and I can tell you that probably many of you have. They may not be our own sons. Some of you have had your own sons rise up against you. But what are the, the enemies that each of us have, and even, to be honest with you, that King David had, that help us understand what is behind these adversaries declaring there is no salvation in God? Well, three of them come to mind. We, we all face the enemy of our own sin. There's a desire in all of us called our sinful selves that is constantly waging war against God's work in our lives. We feel it every day in our lives, and we just try to do the right thing. Sin's like it's, it's like right at our elbow pulling us back. It's like running with a parachute on our back, just pulling us backward. We all face as well the second adversary, which is the sinful world. Now, this does not mean the created world, like things like food and clothing and drink, material things. It simply means the sinful world's philosophies. We just saw it on the screen of the picture that humans are the center of all things, and what humans want, humans should get. Humans can do whatever they want, whenever they want, with no regard to God or others, because salvation is found in our fulfillment, in our satisfaction. But we also face the enemy of the devil, the prince of the power of the air. He has been warring against humans since the beginning of time. We saw this in the book of Genesis already. And specifically God's people just trying to keep us at link and discouraged all the time and disillusioned with what this world is telling us. And our adversaries, our own sin, the sinful world, the devil, have been wreaking havoc on our lives since the moment you were born. Donald Williams wrote this about this psalm. Setting the psalm in the context of David's heartbreak over his son's sinful civil war lends historical color and concreteness to its interpretation. At the same time, the psalm could, have, could easily have been used before any battle by the king and those in command. Moreover, it is now a psalm for Israel and the church, universalized beyond that faithful day with Absalom. As God's people, we all have our, own, our enemies and battles to fight. This is our psalm, too. As the evil in the world explodes upon us, and as our own frailty and compromises become more and more evident, the lie, there is no help for him in God, sounds like the truth. If we're going to fight against this lie, we must remember its origin. Jesus said of Satan, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. From what you're noticing in Psalm chapter 3 is that God does not ignore earthly realities. We have a real, we have real adversity and we have real adversaries. And the reality of living in a Genesis 3 world that we live in is we will have trials and we will have enemies. We will have hardships, and we will have difficult people. And our sinful selves, the sinful world, and the devil are shouting everywhere, there is no salvation in God. That's the earthly reality. It's what you live in every day. right? I was driving in this morning just reading the billboards and just listening to them speak. There is no salvation in God. It's found in money. There's no salvation in God. It's found in pleasure. Over and over and over again, they're speaking to you. And parents, listen, they're speaking to your kids. So how do we cope with this? How do we endure? How do we not lose our minds amid this, these earthly realities? What, what does David show us 
that will help us. That's the next point. Heavenly realities. Peace and protection. And you're going to see this in verses 3 through 8. Now, some of you right now are faced with enormous challenges. And I want you to notice what David does in verse 3, which is a remarkable transition. You hear David in verses 1 and 2, how many, O oh Lord, are the, the enemies? And look what he does, how he begins verse 3. But you, O oh Lord. I wonder if right now, as an exercise of your heart, while you're thinking about the, the adversaries and the adversities, if you might not just for a moment just, just pull the veil back into heaven and say, but, but you, O oh Lord. Because what David does is he begins to contrast what is happening in heaven with what's happening in earth. And he's not saying that neither one are real or more real than the other. What he's saying is there are earthly realities, but you, God. And let's just follow David's example with this. What does David do? How does he reveal this to you? Notice what he wrote about God in this psalm. He said God was his shield. Another way to put this is that God was his protection. That would mean a lot for a soldier, wouldn't it? He said that God was his glory. See, for David, which is intriguing, is God was the spoils of war. Just think about that for a moment. Absalom was coming after David, seeking the throne, which was the glory he was seeking. But for David, God was that glory. God heard his prayers. Jerusalem was the holy city that David had been exiled from in this wilderness wandering. Yet David knew, David knew that God heard him no matter where he was located. And God sustained him. In David's weakest most vulnerable moment of his life, running from a violent enemy. David laid his head down to sleep, probably from exhaustion. And he woke up because God, God took care of him. God sustained him. And then David says, God will save his people. See, in contrast, what the adversaries are saying, that God won't save David or his people. David knew, no, salvation belongs to the Lord. God is the one who makes that determination, not the earthly realities. Now, what's interesting about verses 3 through 8, and I want you to notice this in your Bibles, you're going to notice how David's past experiences with God affected his present faith in the earthly reality. Notice the past tense statements. Verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Verse 5, I laid down and slept. I woke again, and he sustained me. See that? Notice how it affected David. Verses 6 and 7, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who've set themselves against all around me. Why? Because I laid down and slept, and the Lord sustained me. Why? Because I cried aloud to the Lord, and he heard me. Verse 7, arise, O Lord, save me, my God, for you strike all my enemies on their cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. David could pray this prayer because why? He cried aloud to the Lord and God had heard him. He laid down and slept and God sustained him. See, do you see past experiences affecting his present reality? The heavenly realities, what God did, instructed and informed David's faith in earthly realities. David could pray with certainty that God would save him because he had seen God save him before. And then notice something else intriguing about this psalm. Notice the bookend verses in verse 3 and verse 8. Verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, the lifter of my head. And then tie that to verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. See, 
salvation from the Lord involves the Lord's protection. David could not say verse 3 without verse 8. It means our lives are redeemed and God becomes our glory. You could not say verse 3 without verse 8. It means the Lord lifts up our heads. And just think about all the things that make you drop your head. Shame. Discouragement. Feelings of inadequacy. Dejection. Rejection from others. And salvation from the Lord is God telling you as his child, come here and just puts his hand on your chin and says, lift, lift up your head. See, what David shows us in Psalm 3 is remarkably important to our everyday lives. Heavenly realities help us deal with earthly realities. In contrast with verses 1 and 2, verses 3 through 8, show us that God gives us peace when we recall and remember and believe heavenly realities. We think about this moment. David is fighting in the, he's in the fight of a lifetime against his own son who's coming for his head. And David recalled the facts of heaven. God is for me. God hears me. God protects me. God will save his people. And those realities sustained David. See, friends, things in heaven are already decided. So you got you got to get that wrapped around your human brain. <laughs> Stan mentioned one last week, and I love the statement that Stan said last week. There is no debate in heaven about who the king of the universe is. Are you glad? <laughs> I'm so glad. I that that has sustained me this week. Just thinking through. In heaven right now, the, the angels are not going, so who do you think is going to rule this thing? There's no debate. All there is is worship and honor and service to the one who is ruling it all. There's no debate. How refreshing is that? But can I just show you something that in David's psalm, on the morning before Absalom and the battle with Absalom, David does the same for you. He does the same for me. He tells us of heavenly realities. If you are a child of God, God sees. He knows. And he knew way before it ever happened. If you're a child of God, God protects. Your soul will not be lost. If you're a child of God, God sustains. He will get you through to the end. If you're a child of God, God hears your prayers. And remarkably enough, the Holy Spirit translates those prayers to make them match the will of God. So God hears your prayers. If you're a child of God, God brings salvation from beginning to end. And if you're a child of God, listen, listen, clearly, God lifts your head. From your guilt, he gives you forgiveness. From your disillusionment, he gives you perspective. From your fear, he says, lift up your head and look. He gives you faith. Earthly realities will scream, there is no salvation for you in God. But heavenly realities are declaring over and over again, salvation belongs to our God and his blessing will be upon his people. Do you believe that? Is it sustaining you? Is it holding, holding you tight to the anchor of your soul? Now let's apply this by just looking at our last point, which is how to be grounded in heavenly realities. I know you well enough to know you, and I believe this about my church, and I it is a, just an absolute joy to serve this church. And you are people who want to know 
how can you grow in Christ and be anchored? How can you honor Christ? How can you represent Christ? How can you declare Jesus? And so I want to give you three things that will help you tether your soul to these heavenly realities. I want to just basically do what Paul told us to do in Colossians 3. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Now, what Paul doesn't mean here is things on earth aren't real. What he's saying is you're on earth. There are things that are going to happen all around you. And I want you to have your minds tethered, locked in, cemented to, anchored to the realities of heaven. So how do we do that? Let me just give you three things, and they're in your bulletin, because it's important that we remember some things, or we recall some things, or um, I like to say this to myself, remind yourself of these things. Here's the reason for it. Earthly realities are going to demand of you to listen to their narrative. Good demand of you. And hear their proclamations and believe them. And in those moments, you must take action. Let me tell you how this helped me, just briefly. I shared with the elders about two months ago that I was going through the most discouraging time I've ever gone through in my ministry. I can't, I don't know why. I couldn't put a finger on it. My time in the Word was great. Um, I was coaching baseball, but I could not get my mind off of certain things coaching baseball. I'd come to church and see what God's doing, and I just would walk away going, yeah, this is great, but just discouraged. It's weight. And da- daily, <laughs> I'm just going to tell you daily, I had to go to these three things. And these three things anchored me. My wife would tell you that if these things weren't anchoring me, I'm not sure where my mind would have gone. Three things that I think will help you anchor to heavenly realities. First one is this. Remember that no one loves you, accepts you, or approves of you more than God. This is incredibly critical and important when people reject you. When your health is waning. When there's uncertainty in life and when no one feels around you, it feels like nobody approves of you or they care about you. I find this true as people are getting older in their life. I'm one of those. And you begin to ask things about your life, like, where do I fit as I get older? My body's breaking down. My hips hurt. My back hurts. I get out of bed and I feel like I've done a wrestling match all night. And I wonder, wasn't that supposed to be wrestling? And then you start getting engaged in certain activities that you used to be good at and you're not good at anymore. And you begin to ask yourself questions. Or, this is remarkably helpful when somebody stabs you in the back or somebody hurts you. Remember that no one loves you, accepts you, or approves of you more than God. You can hear in David's psalm, can't you? Salvation belongs to God, and I'm not going to let go of that. And the evidence that this is true is Jesus Christ. For God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son. His life, death, and resurrection is the evidence that God loves you, accepts you, and approves of you, and nobody else can do this and does this more than God. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. So listen, you must take action. Remind yourself. Recall it. Remember this. This is helpful for those of us that are approval junkies. Those that demand respect. And we don't get it. We're mad. We don't get somebody's approval. We immediately get discouraged. No one loves you. 
accepts you or approves of you more than God because of Christ. Remember that. Remind yourself of that. I mean, be aggressive with it. I found myself in front of my mirror. Nobody loves you more than God. Second thing, remember that no one has criticized or judged you more precisely than God. This may be harsh for some of you to think about, because many of you, God is love, he is gracious, and he's kind, and in your mind, God doesn't, he's not critical of me. But this is a critical moment for you when enemies seem to surround you, and all they can say is bad things about you. Or when people are criticizing you. Or when you're heading to into a, a performance review at your job. And you're nervous about, what are they going to say? How's it going to define my identity? Or your spouse do, doesn't like the way you did something. I mean, you make eggs and they come in and they correct it. You know, I mean, you wash the car and it's like, well, you, you kind of missed a spot right there. You know? This is critical. Remember that no one is criticized or judge you more precisely than God. And the evidence of this, that this is true, is Jesus. Here's how you know this. And I want you to evaluate this for a moment. And in your own personal moment, it took the Son of God's death to deal with your sin. Think about that. It took the prince of heaven's death to satisfy the wrath of God for you. Meaning, God looked upon you and said, that person is so sinful, most critical judgment ever, that it's going to take my son's death to deal with it. Can you see how nobody has done that? There's people that have criticized you, but they're not sending their kid for you. No one has criticized you or judged you more precisely than God has. And God's judgment on you, because Jesus died for you, listen clearly, is the judgment, the wrath, is over. What? It is finished. So you can go into a job performance review and know this. They're not going to say anything to me that's going to change my identity and who I am. So I can receive the criticism for what it is, and I can chew up the meat and spit out the bones. Because the most precise, critical judgment has already been made and declared, and God said, because of Christ, it's finished. No one in the universe's history has judged you or criticized you more than God did. Think about how refreshing that is when an enemy comes to you and says, I don't like you very much, and here's why. And your response can be, you know what's interesting about that? Thank you for giving it to me. Thank you for telling me that. But you don't know a tenth of it. God knew it all. Think how freeing that is. And the last thing to remember. Remember that all your enemies have been conquered. Christ has done it all. I mean, are you afraid of the sinful world? Well, Jesus said in John 16, I've said these things to you that you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, earthly realities. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Are you afraid about your adversary, the devil? Well, the writer of Hebrews wrote, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Are are you uh, being run over by your sin and feeling dominated by your sin? Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin For one who has died has been set free from sin. Friends, at every turn, every turn, 
All of our enemies have been defeated in Christ. Yes, there are real Absaloms that live in the world today. But you know what they are? They are just tools of Satan. They're tools of the devil who's already a defeated foe. Yes, I know that disease and death still haunt this world. But according to the Bible, those are the sting of death. But thanks be to God for the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see your sinful selves, this sinful world, the serpent himself, have all been conquered by your risen Savior? Do you see? Heavenly realities help us live and face earthly realities. Earthly realities like adversity and adversaries will help, will tell us that there is no salvation in God. But heavenly realities, they tell us, no, here's the truth. The truth is there is salvation in God and you're mine. And in this world, you will have peace and you will have protection, even though you're going to face adversity and adversary. Last week, I was watching a video of a particular soccer player who was leaving Real Madrid to go into Saudi Arabia. And Real Madrid did a little short video clip of his highlights. I was watching the video. Something stunned me as I watched this man play soccer, which I'm just a new being the whole sport. The joy with which this man played soccer was overwhelming. Every pass, every goal, every moment of the game, he's laughing and joyfully celebrating and moving all around. And it was almost as if the Lord just picked my soul up and said, do you see that man playing soccer with joy? That's how my people are to live every day in whatever they touch. And the only way that can happen is that they set their minds on things that are above. pray. Brothers and sisters, as we pray this morning, I want us to take a moment and just let you before the Lord, I'm going to walk you through a few things that just encourage you. Maybe this morning you're having a battle at home. Maybe it's one of, with one of your kids. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's, maybe it's an ex. And there's constant turmoil. And you feel as if the world is shouting around you. And they're they're accusing you. And this morning, I just want to have you recall and remind yourself of God's work in Christ. Remember that he loves you. Remind yourself. Say to your soul, soul, God so loved me that he gave his only begotten son. Soul, I belong to God. He is my shield and my fortress. He is the lifter of my head. Maybe this morning you have been defeated by particular sins and they're besetting. You feel terrible guilt about them. It could be an addiction. It could be pornography. It could be a sexual issue. It could be um, anger with your kids. It could be impatience. It could be anxiety over the future. Take a moment to remember. Recall and remind yourself. Soul, Jesus has come for me and God has satisfied the biggest debt that I would ever owe. And my sins are forgiven. And then confess your sins to God. Acknowledge that they're real sin. And declare to your soul, 
God is faithful and just to forgive me of all unrighteousness and give me power to change. Maybe this morning the adversities of this life are beating you down. You've lost your job. You can't find a job. Your mortgage payment is weighing on you. Maybe it's trouble at work. Maybe it's stresses of health. And you feel like every enemy is coming after you right now. Remember, recall, remind yourself that your God will sustain you. He will finish what he started. Soul, why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. Father, you know better than any of us that this world is filled with adversities and adversaries. You sent your son to this world and your adversaries mistreated him. They killed him. Yet you have raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand so that heavenly realities are cemented and are never moving. Would you lift up our heads? Would you help us recall, remember, and remind ourselves of these great truths that you love us, you accept us, you approve us, approve of us more than anybody else ever will? That your criticism and judgment is precisely and more perfect than anyone else in the universe, and you have declared that we are forgiven and it is finished. And that every adversary, our sinful selves, this sinful world, and our and, and the devil himself have been conquered and defeated by the risen Christ. And would you put faith, courage, joy into our souls as we face our earthly realities? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.